Go ahead and keep your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 5. Here in a second, we'll jump into Jesus' call to be salt and light. But before we do that, let me just remind you of what we talked about last week. That's really going to set up the whole thing. That's really setting up the whole series. If you weren't here, it may be worth going back and listening to that just to know where we're going over the next five months, five, six months in this series. But last week, again, as an intro to the series, I told you that Jesus' goal in the Beatitudes that we just read was to cast a vision of the good life. Jesus is making the argument that a life of flourishing is a life of being his disciple. Even though the outside world may look at your life and think that you're cursed, to follow Jesus is actually to live life to the full. And now in in verses 13 through 16, we're going to see that he's really putting a close to the Beatitudes. We're going to keep, you saw that we read that again. We're going to keep looking at the Beatitudes today because all these 16 verses really go together. Because what Jesus is trying to show us here in verses 13 through 16 is that he wants us to take things a step further than we talked about last week. When it comes to living life in the kingdom, living the good life, Jesus wants us to see that this is not something that we keep to ourselves. This is something that we go and we share with others. I've heard it said this way, Jesus is a spiritual tornado. You know what a tornado does, right? It brings something in, and then it sends it out. Okay? I have this like core memory that I can't not think of when I say that. I remember I was like five years old, walking through the living room, and my parents were watching that movie Twister. You all remember this? came out in like 1996. And I had not seen any of the movie other than one scene where this poor cow gets sucked up by this tornado and sent like five counties away, right? And that's like a core memory for me. That may be one of my earliest memories in life, is that poor cow getting sucked up and sent out. That's what Jesus does to us in a much more loving way. (laughs) He, He brings us in. He calls us to himself. He invites us. Remember, we talked about this last week. He invites us to follow him, and then he sends us out to be a blessing to others. He blesses us and then sends us out to bless others. This is my favorite definition of spiritual formation, which is something I'm very passionate about. Spiritual formation. You're wondering, what does that mean when we say that? What is spiritual formation? This is one of my favorite definitions right here from Robert Mulholland. Here's the first part of the quote. He says, Christian spiritual formation is a process of being conformed to the image of Christ. That's what we talked about last week. That's our goal. As followers of Jesus, we're going to abide in him. We're going to do the things he did. Right? We're going to reflect him. That's our goal. Right? We, we, want to, we want to be like him. We want to look like him. We want to be conformed more and more into his image. Every day we should be looking more like him. But we don't stop there. Mulholland says this, Christian spiritual formation is a process of being conformed to the image of Christ. And listen to this, for the sake of others. That's key. For the sake of others. And doesn't that make total sense? If we are becoming like Jesus, guess what we're becoming? Others focused. Because Jesus is others focused. (laughs) Jesus, even though he is God, right, came to earth and was completely others focused. His eyes were always up looking for the people who were hurting. And so our goal is to be that type of person. So when we talk about spiritual formation, let me just say this. Spiritual formation at its worst is navel-gazing. It's just, look, it's me, 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 right? It becomes just another type of self-help. 
How am I going to be, you know, how am I going to make myself better? It's all about me, right? You know, Christianity becomes me and Jesus. It becomes maybe even me, Jesus, and my church, but we totally forget about the outside world. That's spiritual formation at its worst, but spiritual formation at its, at its best is imitating Jesus, allowing him to bless you, to invite you into the blessed, flourishing life, and then going out and being a blessing to others. That's what we're looking for. That's a big calling, a huge calling. I don't know how anyone could ever think that Christianity is boring, that following Jesus is boring. This is huge. But we have a role to play, a huge role to play. Listen, to this, this, I've been thinking about this since I read it. It's amazing. Listen to this, this, a description of our calling, this quote from Dallas Willard. He said, the greatest issue facing the world today, think about the world today, all its problems. He says, with all of its heartbreaking needs, is whether those who, by profession or culture, are identified as Christians will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. We have that to offer the world. The best thing that could happen to the world today is Christians start acting like Christians. (laughs) If Christians started acting like disciples of Jesus, if they went out into their workplaces, if they went out into their, with their friends, if they went out to wherever Jesus has called them in the city they're in and actually acted like him, can you imagine? Can you imagine? But that's the calling that we have here. That's what Jesus is calling, to, calling us to. Let's look at it. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, just, just the end there. We'll go back to the Beatitudes in a bit. But Jesus says this, verse 13, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus is calling us to be salt and light. Now, what's that mean? If you do research on this, scholars kind of debate what this means. What is exactly light? What is exactly salt? What's Jesus trying to get at here? I'm just going to tell you what, what I know for sure it means. We can debate all those other things, but here's what I know for sure that it means. To be called salt and to be called light is to be different, isn't it? It's to be different. Salt is different from the thing that it is seasoning. You don't mistake the salt for the meat. They're different things. So salt stands out. It's different than the thing that it's in. And light's the same way. Light, you, you'll have no problem in a dark room identifying where the light is. Let's just, I, mean, I know I, I can just explain this. I don't need to show you, but let me show you anyway, right? Let's do this, okay? Maddox, go ahead and take those lights down, okay? So as the lights go down, pay attention to where your eyes go, okay? Can't you see? You know everywhere that light is, right? You see? It's on the screen. You can see the cracks in the door that you didn't know were there. You can see that one light shining up there, right? Okay, raise them back up, Maddox. You see that? There's no mistaking it. When you're in a dark room, you know where the light is. The light is different from the darkness. It's not possible for light to blend into darkness because then it's not light anymore. You see that? 
So Jesus' call to us is to be salt and to be light. It's a call to be different. John Stott says the message of the entire Sermon on the Mount can be summarized with only five words. And there are five words that Jesus uses about halfway through the sermon in Matthew 6, 8. He says, do not be like them. That's the whole Sermon on the Mount in five words. Do not be like them. Stand out. Be different. The true Christian cannot be hid any more than you can hide a city. That's what Jesus says. Try hiding a city in the darkness. You can't. A true Christian cannot be hid. And so Jesus is calling his disciples to be in the world, but to stand out from it. Be a part of the world, but look different from the world. That's exactly, you know, there's this ama- one of my favorite passages, John 17. Jesus is praying for us, which is just so amazing. He's doing that today, even as he intercedes with the Father. But he, he's praying for us in John 17. And listen to this one little portion of what he prays. This is his prayer for his followers in John 17, starting in verse 14. He says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. You see it. Two things. We are sent into the world, and we are different. Okay? We can't pull away, and we can't be like the world. We are sent to the world, and we are sent to be different. So what's that look like? How do we be different? Wait, what, what does it look like to actually be different? Well, here's the beautiful thing. Jesus already told us. Okay? We didn't talk about him last week. We kind of skimmed over him. But today, I want to I go back to these Beatitudes. Okay, so look in, look in your Bible. Go to verses 3 through 12. We're going to spend some time just, just working through these. Because I think when we ask, what does it look like to be salt and light? I think this is the answer. Live this out. Live out the Beatitudes. You want to look different? You want to be light in, dar- in the darkness? Do this. Jesus has already told us. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to do like a helicopter right over it. Okay, we're not on the ground because that would take like a sermon for each one, but we're not 30,000 feet up. We're going to do a little helicopter ride just over the, these Beatitudes. There'll be eight that we're going to look at here. And here's what I want you to see. This, is, this was amazing. I, I was really, really excited studying this this week because I hadn't really ever taken a deep dive into the Beatitudes. But this is amazing. They're not just totally random things that Jesus picked out of, the, out of nowhere and just kind of put them all in there. I want you to see that they all really build on each other. It's, it's amazing. Someone described it as like you can picture rings that go, and you, you know like at a, at a playground when you grab the rings and go from one to the other? Each beatitude really builds on itself. And we also see that, that they build on itself in, in these groups. So what we're going to see is that we can actually picture the beatitudes like a flower. Okay? I want you to, this may be not be helpful to you at all, but it is to me, so I'm going to use it. We can picture it like the flower where the, the first three beatitudes provide the roots of the Christian life. They're the roots that everything else comes out of. So let's look at those first. These first three, starting in verse three, the roots of a godly life. These roots that need to take hold in our hearts so that everything else will follow. Let's look at it. Verse three, Jesus says, first of all, that his followers are to be poor in spirit. Poor in spirit. And we start off on an interesting note because we're like, what does that mean? Okay, poor in spirit. 
What it means to be poor in spirit is that we understand and acknowledge our spiritual bankruptcy. We understand that even though we are made in the image of God, Jesus made us to be beautiful, to, to, to reflect him, to, to do what he's called us to do, that we are all rebels against him. And so we have actually nothing to offer but empty hands. And we are, we are poor in spirit. We, we, don't, we don't go to God like the Pharisee in his parable that came and just prayed to God and said, thank you that I'm not like him and her and her. That's not what we do. We come, and we come like that tax collector. And we say, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's, how we, that's, that's our posture. Have, I know I need the mercy. Right? I have nothing to offer you. What am I? I'm a broken vessel. Please have mercy on me, a sinner. Everyone wants to feel like they're the good guy. But we remember that before Jesus saved us, we were dead in our sins. We were, we were a corpse. Right? That's, that's what, remember Ephesians 2, that's what Paul describes us as. He's trying to describe us. And what does he say? Dead in your sins. Just, just what, what does a dead person have to offer outside of the intervention of Jesus? Nothing. That's, that's what we are. We echo G.K. Chesterton when he was asked, what's wrong with the world? And he responded, I am. <laughs> because we know that before Jesus saved us, we were just, again, as I said, dead in our sins. God's enemy. And though we fight sin, we know sin still lives in us. So we start there. That's the first root. We are poor in spirit. And that moves on to the second. We're mourners. Mourners. What are we mourning over? Well, first of all, as Christians, you know, we actually have the most realistic view of the world that there is because we understand where all the world's problems came from. Where everyone else is throwing up their hands saying, what, what's happening? Right? Like, why is everything like this? We know. We, we know. We, we know it all comes from the fall. We, ha we have the answer. We know that the answer is sin. And so we mourn because we know that this is not the way it's supposed to be. I mean, like I've, heard, I've heard people say, you know, you're a Christian. You have hope. Get your chin up. It's all going to be okay. Amen. It is all going to be okay. But it's also not the way it's supposed to be. Is it? Things are not the way it's supposed to be. We know that one day it will be the way it's supposed to be. We know that one day everything sad is going to come untrue. But right now we mourn at the state of the world because sin is, is so pervasive and we know this is not how it should be. So we mourn. Also, to make it more specific, to show how it, it comes off this last one, we mourn over our own sin. We know we are poor in spirit, meaning that we understand our spiritual bankruptcy, but it's one thing to know that you're spiritually bankrupt. It's another thing to actually hate that. It's another thing to actually mourn over that. There are a lot of people who will say, yeah, I'm a sinner. Of course I am. Of course, I, yeah, it's fine, right? I don't know why this came to my mind. It's like that old meme, you know, of the dog, the cartoon dog sitting in the fire, sipping its cup of coffee. This is fine, Right? We're poor in spirit. We know the fire's going on around us. We know the fire's going on inside us. We know that we're sinners, but we don't mourn over it. Mourners understand, I'm not the way I'm supposed to be. <laughs> and and that, that makes me angry. That makes me sad. I know that I'm not living up to my potential as someone made in the image of God. 
we feel the weight of our sin. And Jesus talked a lot about that. Do you remember Jesus came and what did he say? It, well, he, he came and they asked him, they said, why are you always hanging out with sinners? And he described himself as a doctor. He said, I'm a doctor. I'm, I'm here to help the sick. The people who aren't sick don't need me. Now, the truth is everyone needs him. But the Pharisees didn't know that they needed him. I've heard it said that the, the barrier between Jesus and the Pharisees wasn't the Pharisees' sin. It was their damnable good works. They didn't know that they needed Jesus. And that was keeping them from him. So we mourn over our sin, knowing that we're in need of a doctor. And then third, the last root, we're meek. We're meek. If we're poor in spirit and we're mourning over our sin, this gives us a gentleness. When we see sin, we don't come down too hard. Okay? We come down against the sin, right? But we don't hate the person who is sinning because we know that the thing in them that's causing them to do that is in us. And outside of the grace of God, we would be just like them. So yes, we hate their sin, but we don't hate them. To hate someone, you have to feel superior to them. And we know that we're not superior. We know that we were rebels just the same. But we know that Jesus lived the perfect life we couldn't live, died the death that we deserve, rose again, defeated death, and we're in him. That's the only thing separating us from them, is Jesus. So that gives us a humility, a gentleness, a meekness, and let me tell you one other way this plays out. This means that we should take criticism really well. Okay? Right? So if we know, think of, think of where we've gone so far. So if, if we are poor in spirit and we are mourning over our sin, then we should be people who take criticism better than anyone. Because we know it's already true about us. They can't tell us anything that we don't already know. I love this. Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite quotes. He says, If any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you're worse than he thinks you to be. Right? That's it. Okay? Throw your criticisms. Okay? We look for the kernel of truth in it and try to change because we know already. You can't, you can't tell us anything that we don't know. You see that? This is the roots. You can picture the, the plant here. Okay? This is the roots. This is where everything has to come out of. And I want you to see... If you have these three things, if you're poor in spirit, if you're mourning, and then if you have this meekness, if you understand, you know, you have this gentleness towards others, what you're going to have ultimately is gratitude. You're going to realize that everything that you have is undeserved. You're not going to expect anything from anyone. You're not going to feel entitled to anything because you know that it's all a gift. <laughs> when you look at the world that way, think about how many gifts you have. You deserve hell separated from God. Everything else is a gift. That's a lot of gifts, isn't it? And so that gives us a gratitude. And let me just say this. Gratitude is the fuel for truly loving someone. True love only comes out of gratitude. I love it. One author said it this way. I think this was perfect. He said, anything we call love, but is that, that is not rooted in gratitude, will at the end of the day be manipulative and self-serving. If our love and service of others did not begin in gratitude, listen to this, we will end up carrying people's crosses and then sending them the bill. Everything we do will become a quid pro quo. I'll do this for you, but you've got to do that for me. 
But when we realize the root here, when we have this, when we go from here, we have this, this, this graciousness. We have this, this gratitude that only comes from this. And we just love people because we love them, not because we're looking for anything from them. You see the difference here. Okay? We need this root to truly be able to love people. And then that takes us to the fourth beatitude. So we have the roots, picture that, and then this little shoot comes out, and that's beatitude four. So out of these roots comes a shoot, and it's this. We hunger and thirst for righteousness. So let's talk about righteousness. We talked about this in our Roman series a lot, and Paul talked a lot about God's imputed righteousness. You remember this? So there's a righteousness that comes to us based on what Jesus did. So though we are sinners, Jesus came, again, as I said earlier, lived the perfect life we couldn't live, died the death that we deserve, and if we trust in him, this great exchange happens where we get everything he earned and he took everything that we did. Isn't that amazing? Like, what? praise God. Like, that's just, like, don't get bored with that, please, because that, that's, that's amazing. That's his imputed righteousness. We get the righteousness that he earned for us. Praise God. Amen. But I actually think that, that Jesus is taking it a step further here and, and talking about a different He's talking about the same righteousness, but he's talking about a little bit different. He's talking about here that, that that knowledge of what Jesus did for us should call us to pursue a righteous life. We don't just sit in that and sit there, you know, assured. No, that should lead to fruit. <laughs> that should lead to abiding in him and bearing fruit and seeking to imitate him and live like him. We should become doers of the word, not just hearers. We should not be content with our sins being forgiven. We should kill our sin and train ourselves for godliness. We hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's what we wake up and hunger and thirst for. I want to be like Jesus, who was righteous. Yes, I get his righteousness by trusting in him, but I, not, it's not only that. I want to look like him. I want to be salt and light. When I walk into my workplace, I want people to see Jesus, right? Like that I want to be his disciple. That's what we talked about last week. I'm going to do the things he did. So let me, let me just stop there and have you ask yourself, what do you hunger and thirst for? You only get to choose one thing, okay? What do you hunger and thirst for? What would you say? Do you thirst for righteousness or do you thirst for something else? Because let me tell you this. Jesus said stuff like this over and over again, right? If you want to be filled, which is what we sing about, it's only through hungering for him, thirsting for him. I promise you, a lot of y'all have experienced it, and that's why you're here. Thirsting for the things of this world is like drinking salt water. It feels good for a second, and then you're more thirsty than you ever were before. Thirsting for righteousness, that's the only way to be satisfied. It's only found in Jesus. Next. Well, sorry, let me, let me continue here. So we have the roots, we have the shoot, and now we have the fruit. Okay, the final four are the fruit. So you can picture that plant. We have the fruit, and coming out of it, this is the fruit of a godly life. This is how we will carry ourselves in the world. First of all, we're merciful. Merciful. Now, merciful is not a word that I would use to describe our world right now, our culture. We are living in a mercy deficit. We all want revenge. We don't want to offer forgiveness. If you are merciful, especially in politics, you're seen as weak. We're supposed to come back and come back 10 times harder when someone comes at us. 
And let me just also point out, there's this really destructive view that is rampant in our world. And maybe especially, I say our world, maybe especially on Twitter or X or whatever it's called now. But there's this view that is rampant in our world that if, if you do not agree with someone and you believe wholeheartedly that you are right, then you have permission to be a complete jerk to them. <laughs> like that, That's basically the view. If you are wrong and I know I'm right, then I cannot show you mercy. I have to show how bad you are. I have to demonize you to the point where if any of my friends even talk to you, then they're demons too. <laughs> have you seen this? Am I, just, am I the only one who's seen this? Right? If I'm right, then I can be a jerk to you. But here's the thing. As Christians, we imitate Jesus. <laughs> and that wasn't the way he handled things like that. Jesus got into disagreements a lot. They didn't demonize the people. I mean, he did say that their father was Satan. But, I mean, you know, like, you, you get what I'm saying. I just feared that. Out. But, he, you know, he, what he, well, I'll, I'll say this. As he's, as he's in these arguments with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he's also offering them mercy over and over and over again. Right? He's offering them mercy down to the point where he's dying because they put him on the cross. And what does he say? Father, forgive them. They know not what they've done. Jesus didn't see, the, the, see things the way that we saw things. When someone, he disagreed with someone, he came back with mercy. And let me just say this. Mercy flows from mercy. So if you're a Christian and you've experienced the mercy that Jesus has shown you, how can you not be merciful to others? You see that, right? Like, like that's insane. And Jesus tells a parable about this, right? The guy who, who gets forgiven of his sins of, of billions of dollars and then goes out and chokes a guy out for $10,000. How can we not be merciful when we have experienced that kind of mercy? So we're merciful. Next, we're pure in heart. We're pure in heart. Doesn't that sound amazing? <laughs> this means that there's a sincerity about us. Our lives are led with pure motives. Right, like you know, the Proverbs talks about how everything flows out of our heart. Well, we're pure in heart, so then everything that flows out is pure. I love this. Even our motivations, even our motivations for doing good works is pure. That's what Jesus talks about in our passage. Look at verse 16. He says, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. Okay, which is interesting. He's like, go get the attention on you. Okay, through your good works, get people to look at you. But why? so that they will give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We don't do good works in order for people to say, wow, you're amazing. We don't want the attention on us just for the attention to be on us. We want the attention to be on us to reflect the true light so that people see him. Jesus will talk more about this in depth in, in, in chapter 6. He's going to talk about people who give their money, who pray, who fast, all good stuff, but they do it just to be seen by others. Is that you? Is that you? Are you living? Maybe, I mean, I think you can fake it for a little while. Are you a fake light? <laughs> Going out living like a light, but you're not actually reflecting Jesus. It's just all about you. I've said this before. I, I mean, literally, I have to think about this every single time I preach a sermon. Because a, a sermon is something I'm putting a lot of work into it. And I'm, I'm trying to, to grow my skills in order to communicate this better. But I find this thing that creeps up all the time 
where I'm looking for people to come up and say, you're amazing, right? That was so good. And you can do that if you want. I'm not going to stop you, but no. But I'm looking for that, right? I'm looking for people to think a lot of me. But the whole point of preaching is for people to think a lot of God, right? Like that, that's, it's, it's all to be, or if we're not the light, the light reflects off us and goes to other people. That's our lives. Our lives are all just to reflect him, to point people to him. Next, this is a big one, okay? Listen to this one. This is a big one. We are peacemakers. Remember that Willard quote, the world needs Christians to act like Christians? Doesn't the world need peacemakers? Like more than, more than anything, doesn't the world need people who are actually striving for peace? And let me emphasize something because some of y'all are like, I'm a peacemaker. I've never gotten an argument. I've never gotten a fight. Here's the thing. This is not a cheap peace. And I, I'm kind of speaking to myself here. Some of us are peacemakers, but it's just because we're so conflict averse. <laughs> like, we don't actually care about seeking peace. We just don't want anyone to rock the boat. So what we do is when something comes that isn't peaceful, when evil comes, we go like this. I don't see anything. Right? And we just try to live our life being naive because ignorance is bliss. That's not what he's talking about here. Okay? A peacemaker's realistic. As I said earlier, as Christians, we know what's wrong with the world. Okay? We can't just hide and be like, everything's okay, everything's okay. No, it's not. And we know why, because of sin. So that's not it. Okay? A peacemaker understands that there is going to be evil. There is going to be conflict in the world. But here's what a peacemaker does. I love that. I've probably used this before, but, but I, I love it. It's so helpful to me. I read one author who said that Christians are called to not be electrical cords, but instead to be water purifiers. Okay? Water purifiers, not electrical cords. Here's the difference. Think of an electrical cord. What is it? An electrical cord is just a mindless conduit. Whatever comes into it, comes out. Okay? So if anger comes at an electrical cord, that energy comes at it, what's going to come out? Anger in return. You come at me, whatever you come at me with is going to come back at you harder. It's going to have time to accelerate and come back and hit you. And so what we have are just a bunch of electrical cords where this energy is going around and around and around and around and around, then it blows up. And that's our world. <laughs> electrical cords, just passing energy back and forth, negative energy, gossip, right? What does an electrical cord do when gossip comes to them in their workplace or at their school? It goes on to someone else, okay? It just passes on through. But this author says that we're called to be water purifiers. What does a water purifier do? You put in toxins. You put in water that has toxins, and what comes out? Pure, clean water, okay? You the hate comes in. The anger comes in. The gossip comes in. And guess what? It stops there. Done. It stops there. We, we keep it in ourselves and we give back pure water, which makes sense. Why? Because we're pure in heart. You see how these all work together. We're pure in heart. So you come at us with toxins and all, out only comes pure water. You see, okay, can you see how that would change the world? If people who claim to be Christians actually did this, how that would change everything. We take in evil, we give out blessing. And then that takes us to our final statement. And, and it, it's a little bit different. It actually acts more as a warning. The warning is this, we will be persecuted. Jesus said that in the prayer I read earlier. If you, if you live like this, 
some people will hate you. And let me, can I make a clarifying statement? Okay, this is something else I see a lot in our culture. There's a lot of people who claim to be Christians and they do not live like the Beatitudes at all. Okay, they live like jerks. They don't live like peacemakers. They actually rile things up and then people come back at them and they say, well, they just hate me because I look like Jesus, right? It's persecution because I'm a Christian. No, it's not. It's just because you're a jerk and people don't like jerks. Right? right? Like, do you see this? Like, it's, no, I'm, I'm going to claim the name of Christ and go out and be a jerk. And when people come back at me, I say, you know, I'm, I'm like the, the soccer player that flops and says, oh, no, right? Like, how in the world? Why are you doing this? That's not it, right? That's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying that the world hates me. So if you look like them, guess what? Or if you look like me, guess what? They're going to hate you too, okay? We actually want to be hated for looking like Jesus, not for being a jerk. You see that? Okay. So the warning is, we will come, and if we are light, some people are going to hate that because light shines, light shines on the darkness and it reveals it, and that makes people uncomfortable. There's a story I heard that stuck with me about, about Billy Graham. So Billy Graham was uh, playing, and I don't know when this was, but at some point, um, he was playing in a pro-am golf tournament. And he was paired up with two other PGA Tour pros. And when they got back to the clubhouse, they played 18 holes. They get back to the clubhouse, and one of the golf, Billy wasn't with them anymore, but one of the golfers gets out, goes into the locker room, and he screams out, I hate Billy Graham. Why does he have to shove his religion down my throat? And so someone goes to, to the other golfer who was with him and said, what did Billy say? Like, did he give him a hard time or what? He said, no, Billy was delightful. He never even mentioned religion. You see what happened? When you are a light, you shine light on the darkness, and the darkness doesn't like that. It makes them uncomfortable. Okay? It, it reveals things in their own life that are broken, and people get uncomfortable with that. We, need, I mean, we will be hated by some, but make sure it's for the right things. <laughs> make sure it's because you look like Jesus. That's a good question to ask yourself. Do you look enough like Jesus that those who hate him will hate you too? Do you look enough like Jesus that those who hate him will hate you too? We are called to look different from the world, and some won't like that. But that's not it. That's not all. We're not just called to look different. We're also called to be a blessing. We're also called to go out and be a blessing to the world, even if they don't know they need it. <laughs> We're called to go out and be a blessing. We're called to be salt and light. And if we do that, we can, we can really have an effect on things. Right? Go back to that. Can you put that Dallas Willard quote back up? Just after everything we talked about, think about this again. The greatest issue facing the world today, with all its heartbreaking needs, is whether those who, by profession or culture, are identified as Christians will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. Do you see the opportunity there? Do you see the opportunity? And do you see what Jesus is calling us to? This is amazing. Sometimes we can get overwhelmed by the calling that we have on our life. And let me say, I mean, it's good to attempt big things for God. That's, that's great. I think William Carey said that. That's awesome. That's great. But right here, that's not even what Jesus is calling us to. He's just calling us to go be Christians. Go do small but potent acts. Right? 
Just go to your workplace. Go, you know, that's, what, that's the go in the Great Commission. As you go is what it actually means. As you go, just be his disciple. Go and, and just, just live like him. And when you have an opportunity, point people to the hope that you have. Right? We talk a lot about how to evangelize to people. Amen. We're going to keep doing that because we need to learn how to talk to people about this. But let me say, if you're trying to go out and evangelize, and your life doesn't reflect Jesus, you're not going to have much success. I can promise you that. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's just not going to be that effective. We need to point people to Jesus with our words, absolutely, but we have to reflect him with our lives. We have to be salt and light. Let me also say this, okay? Just make sure you know. Maybe you feel like, well, this is a lot for one person. Yeah, it is. Here's the other amazing thing. You're not called to do this alone. You're called to be salt and light, but you also have help. Here's an interesting thing that we could miss. When Jesus says you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world, that you is in the second person plural. So if Jesus was giving the Sermon on the Mount in East Tennessee, you know what he would say? Y'all are the light of the world, <laughs> right? Y'all are the salt of the earth. It's all y'all, right? Like that, it's all y'all got to be doing this. It's a call for the church. Think about that. I mean, I mean one Bit, like one little light in a dark room doesn't do much. One grain of salt doesn't do much. But you get a bunch of salt, changes things, doesn't it? Changes things. And so we're called to do this as a church. West Park Baptist Church needs to be salt and light in our community. We can be a light in a dark world. And let me just say, the world feels really dark. And it seems to be getting darker, but also there's an opportunity because as things get darker, what happens? Lights shine brighter, don't they? They shine brighter. There's, I hope that you leave here if you're nothing else to just leave excited for what Jesus is calling us to. And I hope that you leave excited, get, you're preparing this. You know what? Because here's the thing. Sometimes I'm just sitting here and I'm like, okay, if Jesus doesn't step in and do anything, I started my ministry career in 2012. Let's say that he allows me to live till I'm 80, okay? And I die in, you know, whatever it is, 80, you know, you're 82, or I don't know, whatever. I die at some point later. I can't do math. Here's, the, here's what's probably going to happen. When I started in 2012, and when I retire, there's going to be a lot less Christians in America than there were. <laughs> like, like, it just seems to be this precipitous, and I'm just basically shepherding people into the death of Christianity in America, Okay? I can feel like that. That's not true, but I can feel like that. Preparing this has made me so excited that I live in 2023. What an opportunity. As the lights seem to be going down, what an opportunity to be the light that we have. Do you see that? Okay, leave excited, please. I mean, what the, you know, you could, I don't know if you feel like your job is fulfilling or whatever, but I can promise you, you have a role. You have a role right here in Knoxville, Tennessee, wherever God sovereignly has you to be salt and light. Okay? Let me close with this. Okay? Let me close with this. Jesus said, John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. We're called to reflect him. How do we do that? Let me give you three statements, three closing statements. It'll be really quick. First of all, to be the light, you have to stick close to the light. To be the light, you have to sit close to the light. It's not something you do on your own power. 
I was thinking about the Old Testament. There's a story about Moses where he spends 40 days and 40 nights with God on Mount Sinai. And you remember, he comes down and there was something different about him. His face was glowing. <laughs> he spent time with God and he was literally, his face was a light. They had to cover it because he was glowing so much. Why do we think that the same thing will happen to us when we spend a couple minutes a day with God a few days a week? Why do we think that we can go without ever communing with God, without ever spending time with Him, and think that we can go out and be His light? We, we commune with Him, abide in Him, and then go out and be His light. Find, find that time, right? I know there's some, some young parents in the room. I'm one of them, and it feels like, how in the world? I don't know. I don't have the answers, but find the time. Okay? Find the time. Find the time to commune with God, to be with Him, to keep Him. Okay, let me just ask this. Do you have Him on your mind? Or is He getting totally drowned out by the things of this world? Is He only coming to your mind when you show up here on Sunday morning? You're like, oh yeah, God. Right? No. Find ways to bring Him to your mind, to commune with Him. And let me say this, we can help each other with this. Picture it like a, a fire, okay? And we have a role as a church to feed that fire with wood throughout the week, to point each other back to God. What are you talking about when you're having conversations? I'm all for talking about football, okay? I would love to talk to you about how bad Tennessee was yesterday. If you want to talk about that after that, I'm, I'm fine. Talk about those things. But are you talking about things that really, truly matter for the kingdom too? Nothing wrong with talking about football or TV shows, but how much are you feeding that fire, pointing each other to Jesus? Here's number two. To be the light, we have to be among the darkness. Maybe this is just for me. I know some of you all, you have jobs where you're surrounded by non-believers. That's great. What an opportunity. I know you have friends who, who don't know Jesus. What an opportunity. For me, I work in the church, and I have to fight for this. I don't always do a good job, to be honest with you. Allie's so much better at it than I am about being intentional about this. So you have to put yourself out in the world, right? Jesus sent us into the world. You have to find a way to be out in the world. Let me also say this. Again, people with young kids. I was also thinking about this. Me and Allie have two little non-Christians that we spend a lot of time with every day. Their names are Knox and Haddon. They're a four-year-old and our one-year-old, right? What an opportunity you have as a parent to be a light in your home. You know that you are the primary discipler of your kid. Colin and Audra and Chris our kids' ministry, our student ministry, they can't do it alone. They can only support what you're doing. They see your kids for like an hour or two a week. That's nothing. You are the primary discipler of your child. You are the light in your home. Okay? That's on you. Don't give that to someone else. Here's number three. Finally, to be the light, you have to be lit. And I don't mean in the drunk sense. Okay? That doesn't actually help. Jesus is describing his followers as light. And so let me just ask, are you lit? <laughs> are you in Christ? Are you a follower of him? Are you his disciple? Can't be salt and light if you're not his disciple. Okay. And let me, just, let me just say, if you're not, if you're not, we're so glad you're here. And let me just say, the, the beauty of everything I just talked about today is you remember what it started with, the first beatitude, the poor in spirit. The mourners, the meek. The meek are the ones who will inherit the earth. How crazy is that? 
You know what that says to me? Anyone can get in on this. Okay? We talked about last week, Jesus is offering what the good life is. He's offering a life of flourishing, and it's open to everyone. What do you have to have? Nothing. (laughs) Just be poor in spirit. Just come to him and come and bow down on his feet and say, Jesus, I need you. That's all he's looking for. That's all you have to have to get in on this. How beautiful is that? So let me pray, and then we'll sing one last song just about our beautiful Savior and what it means to live life in him. So let's pray. Dear Lord, I, I, I pray just as the thing that, that's coming to my mind here is just that we will see the opportunity we have. All around we just see, I see Christians who just are throwing up their hands saying, why is the world this way? Why, is, why are things like this? please just do something in this church where we see it as an opportunity. Where we wake up in the morning and we thank you, first of all, that you are our shepherd, that you are our savior, that we can apprentice under you, but also that we thank you that you put us here in this time, in this country, in this city, for such a time as this, to be your light, to be salt, to reflect you, Let us do that. When people see members of West Park Baptist Church, just let them see your beauty. Let us be artists who just aren't about us, but just are painting pictures of how beautiful you are so that people see that this is truly a life of flourishing. What we're going to talk about here in the Sermon on the Mount is the good life. Let us show that, Lord. We love you. Use this church. Use this church. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, you can stand.